Acts chapter 8, as we press on in our series of the advance of the kingdom. Chapter 8 actually begins a new section in the book of Acts. Until now, Luke has been writing about the birth of the church in Jerusalem and its surrounding kind of county of Judea. Jesus had said, the witness would begin there. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. But the emphasis is on the witness beginning there because Jesus also said their witness would spread to Samaria, the disdained neighbors to the north, and even to the vast Gentile world. So in chapter 8, Luke is now careful to document that those words of Jesus are actually being fulfilled. He is writing about the gospel's movement to these regions, and not only its movement, but also its success. It works. The good news takes root and brings about belief. This is the advance of the kingdom. This is the gospel overcoming unbelief, piercing the darkness. It's the theme of the whole book of Acts, and yet there are parts in this story where that theme of the whole book is really the theme of our text. It's driving home this simple idea that the gospel works, the church prevails, the kingdom advances. And Luke is making this clear, lest we think for a moment that opposition or persecution will somehow silence or diminish the power of the gospel. It will not. It cannot. And ironically so, it actually seems to facilitate the gospel. Our theme is this, take heart. The kingdom of God is advancing. Now, if you were a missionary on a foreign field in the midst of cultures that have no Judeo-Christian ethic like America does, that theme may seem very fitting. Take heart. Your gospel light seems so small compared to the great darkness. But let's face it. There, there are people in our lives who are unbelievers, sometimes even family members, good friends who are co-workers, people in your neighborhood that that you've gotten to know, and you know they are not believers. And yet, perhaps you think, I don't know what else to say to them. It just seems as though nothing gets through. They just don't believe any of this. Well, whether you're a missionary in a foreign field, not seeing converts and a, and a church exploding in growth, or whether you're praying for that one friend or family member for years and years, Acts 8 is given to us to remind us to take heart. The kingdom of God is advancing, just as Jesus said it would. I want us to read the rest of our text, beginning in verse 9 and going through verse 25. And then we'll see in this story seven descriptions of this advance of the kingdom. Seven descriptions, seven thoughts that can go along with the big theme, the kingdom is advancing. Well, how and what does that look like? That's what Luke wants us to see. Not only that the gospel is spreading from Jerusalem to Samaria, but what that looks like. How does that happen? So look at verse 9 and hear this account that Luke records for us by the Holy Spirit. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. 
Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Seven descriptions of the advance of the gospel as we press on into this documentary that Luke has for us revealing the gospel spread from Jerusalem and the Temple Mount and those new believers, this fledgling church as it now progresses into Judea and beyond to the region of Samaria. The kingdom is advancing, number one, despite the risk of persecution. Our text began where it left off last time with the word and. Something had just happened. Stephen had challenged these Jews with an Old Testament record of how it is they could come to meet God. In the Old Testament, it was through a tabernacle or a temple bringing sacrifice. But now, through the person of Jesus Christ, we meet God. In Christ, by faith, we find forgiveness of sins. He is our sacrifice, not an, not an animal. He is the temple, not a building any longer. He gave them the gospel, how sinners could be made right with God through Jesus. And they took up stones and stoned him. And Saul approved of this execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. It was as if the radical Jews, they just had to get this door open. And once that happened... Once they did more than just throw someone in prison, once they could exercise this bloodthirsty power and actually kill one of these followers, now it was as if all the rules were thrown aside. There's no more restraint anymore. They're not afraid of the crowds anymore and the favor that the apostles had. And on that very day, this great persecution arises against the church. And the text says, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They bury Stephen. And verse 3 says, But Saul was ravaging the church. Elsewhere in Saul's own testimony, he would say he ravaged the church and compelled them to blaspheme. His task was to torture them and to make them recant. And if that didn't work, well, then just kill them. Ravaging the church, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And yet, verse 4 tells us, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. This opening paragraph in chapter 8 is this paradox 
the church persecuted to contain this message about Jesus. But their plan to persecute would be much like our plan to step on a puddle of water in order to get rid of the water. But by jumping on that water with two feet, we, we scatter water everywhere around us. And they stomp on the church and it scatters. But the text is clear. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. The kingdom is advancing despite the risk of persecution. Risk had become reality, but it didn't change what the church was. The church was to be the witness to Jesus Christ. The church being the individuals, those individuals were to be witnesses, whether there was peace, whether there was risk, or whether that risk becomes reality and the church faces true persecution. The task is the same. Jesus' words ring true. You will be my witnesses. And so it is around the world that the church is persecuted and yet the church is simultaneously growing. Scattered, but growing. Persecuted in order to contain, and yet it's actually fuel for a mission to spread. Acts 8 reminds us by the very language of verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria that even regionally, spatially on a map, we are seeing the reality of Jesus' words when he said, I will build my church. You will be my witnesses and it will grow and grow and grow till it reaches the corners of the world. And Acts 8 is that record. Everything in these early chapters is Jerusalem and the apostles and the believers there. And now we read that word Samaria and Acts 1.8 is coming true before our very eyes. But remember, God's plan, his good plan to get the gospel to sinners in need was the church's persecution. God takes the evil of man, swallows it up in his good plan to extend his mercy to the nations and not just the seed of Abraham. The kingdom is advancing despite the risk of persecution. Verse 4 presents us with this irony, persecution furthering the gospel. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. This begs two questions. One, who are those who are scattered? And two, what exactly is preaching? Because if this is going to be for us today, we need to know who they are and what they were doing. So who are those who were scattered? Well, the text has already given us a clue in verse 1. When this great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, it says they all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And look at that last phrase, except the apostles. They remain in Jerusalem. Historically, this may be because most of them are kind of the true Hebrew Jews, not those the Greek culture Jews. So they may have been a, a little more protected, maybe. But if we just take this text, right as we see it, we realize the Christians are scattered, the church is scattered, except for its leaders. Kind of what we would think of as the pastors. So all are scattered except the apostles. So this preaching work that's being done, those who were scattered went about preaching, this preaching work that is being done is the work of every believer. Not merely apostles. Here's our second detail of the advance of the kingdom. The kingdom is advancing in the witness of every believer. The Great Commission is not a pulpit mission alone. 
It's the mission of every believer. And this leads us to the second question. Well, what is this preaching? Because I would venture to say most of you do not think of yourselves as a preacher. We think of that as a pulpit kind of presence. And that's fair enough. The word for preaching in the New Testament is usually a word that's rooted in an ancient custom of a herald, someone who would travel around and announce the news, often for the government. The king might issue a command, announce this to all my people. Or a decree might come down and they have to get it to all the villages. And so the herald would proclaim the message, the news. And that word is borrowed by the Bible as a great word for preaching. What what somebody does to proclaim God's truth. But that's not the word that's here in our text. This word is simply the word good news. Now we have to make that a verb and good newsing doesn't sound quite right, so we could say spreading the good news. It's the work of every believer. They were all scattered except the apostles, the guys that we thought were those revelatory channels of God's truth are not the ones taking the good news everywhere. That's the rest of the people. This preaching is simply the spreading of good news and that Ministry, that witness was carried out by, we could say, the people in the pew, not the guys in the pulpit. It's not that they didn't do that. These early chapters have told us. They stood and proclaimed that truth. They stood before the councils. Stephen gave his life before this council in speaking the truth. But our, our minds are drawn to that and we think, oh, this witness is about the apostles, the, the, the leaders of the church. But that would be an incomplete view of the Great Commission. Jesus said, all who follow me will be my witnesses. And here we see it fleshed out. There's a renowned Yale historian, Kenneth Lauderay, who said this, quote, The chief agents in the expansion of Christianity appear not to have been those who made it a profession but men and women who carried on their livelihood in some purely secular manner and spoke of their faith to those they met in this natural fashion. Here's a historian studying Christianity. I don't even know if he's a believer, but he says there's no denying that Christianity spread through people that just lived their lives, raised their families and worked their jobs. They lived and died representing Jesus wherever they went. And that's how Christianity spread. It wasn't through the 12 apostles and we speculate whether Thomas went far east and whether so-and-so went this direction. And the church, the ancient church, wants to think, oh, it was those saints that got the gospel to the nations. But that would be a falsehood. They carried their part in the Great Commission, but so did every other Christian, the text says. As America entered World War II, a music composer by the name of Aaron Copeland wrote, Fanfare for the Common Man. He wrote it to inspire patriotism in response to the high cost of war. And if you've heard that, you can hear the brass instruments sounding out this thoughtful and yet stirring anthem that celebrated the sacrifice of hundreds of thousands of unnamed heroes, the common man. Acts 8 is telling us that same thing. This this is not the celebration of pastors and their call to proclaim the word. Acts 8 is a celebration of parishioners, we would call them. The everyday Christian that needs no call into full-time ministry because they're already there in places around this city where I will never speak the truth of the gospel. But you might. That's the message of Acts 8. The kingdom is advancing in the witness of every believer. Luke wants us to know 
that the greatest spread of the gospel is accomplished not by trained seminarians, not by formally sent missionaries, but by informal, but real Christianity. The kingdom is advancing. God has called you to a mission field, a sphere of influence. Looks like a neighborhood. It has an address. It has a parking lot where you pull into work. That's your mission field. That's where your light shines. And God has asked you to push back the darkness in those places and let that truth be known. As the old gospel song says, brighten the corner where you are. That's your calling. Look at verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. He went down to Samaria. Number three, the kingdom is advancing as Jesus said it should. My notes, I originally had the kingdom is advancing as Jesus said it would, but that would be kind of leaving it to chance almost. It it would happen somehow, and it lacks the specificity of Acts 1.8 where Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. Jesus knows how it's going to work. There's a should, there's a, a moral ought to our witness. And now we see it unfolding. As Jesus said it should, the gospel would go beyond Jerusalem, beyond the Jewish hub of that Old Testament. And as the prophets of old had predicted, this gospel through the Messiah that would come would be a Messiah not just for the Jews, but for the nations, for the Gentiles, the non-Jews. But this language of going to Samaria is unique for us, and it's not easy for us to understand the significance of it. So let me help you with a brief history of the Samaritans. You remember when Jesus met the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman in Samaria? That whole scenario is set up by a narrative description that says the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. We think we understand racial conflict from our look back into history, perhaps, to the civil rights movement in the 50s or 60s. I venture to say from, and I'm no expert on that movement, uh, but I would venture to say that the Jews' hatred for Gentiles and Samaritans was at least as strong as what we know of in our nation as a white versus black racial divide. So the Bible is clear in setting up the story in John 4, the Jews would have no dealings with these people. They didn't think of them as people. Even coming to Jesus, a woman would refer to this Samaritans and the Gentiles as dogs, not even in an insulting way, but that's just the reality of how it was viewed. These Samaritans are actually descendants from the northern tribes that formed the nation of Israel. Originally one nation under King David and Solomon, but then the nation divided into northern tribes and southern tribes. The north was called Israel, the south was called Judah. Those northern tribes fell to the Assyrian Empire, and when they did, many were taken captive, some were left on the land. But the Assyrians had a pretty good plan back in the day. They would take captured peoples and relocate them to other nations. So the northern tribes of Israel were repopulated with foreign peoples from other conquered lands. This way, by spreading out all these different nations and tribes and ethnicities, it was hard for any kind of unified effort at revolution to be made against the empire. So now the northern tribes is this hodgepodge of peoples and religions. And those descendants now, this mixed group of people, were off limits and unclean to the true Jews in the southern tribes of Judah. The Israelites in the north had intermarried with these peoples, and it had created both a religious divide and a racial divide. There was bitter prejudice 
from the southern tribes of Judah against the Samaritans now, this new people in the north, Samaria being their capital. Adding to the history of dislike, the true Jews of the south remembered that it was the Samaritans who joined in harassing Nehemiah when he came back from captivity and was rebuilding the walls. These distant cousins in the north should have been their helpers and instead became their enemies. And the people of the south remembered that even hundreds and hundreds of years later. During the intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew, those couple hundred years before Jesus comes on the scene, the Maccabees revolted against the Assyrians. And when they were being overwhelmed, the Samaritans had a chance to help and refused to do so. When the Jews were overrun and tortured for their faith to, to compromise, to blaspheme their temple, they wouldn't do it where the Samarit Samaritans quickly did. They surrendered any profession of faith and even gave their temple over to the Greek gods. And the Jews in the south remembered this. To make matters worse, at this very time, Herod, the king whom the Jews hated, married a Samaritan woman. So everything in Jewish history said, we hate each other. The people in the south, those Jews thought they were the pure, true Jews, the sons of Abraham, and they hated the people in the north for their mixed descent and their mixed religion. It's no wonder that the account in John 4 begins with, Jesus felt he needed to pass through Samaria, but the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Almost an understatement. Later in John chapter 4, after Jesus has encountered that woman at the well and given her the hope of living water, the disciples come and join Jesus and they're trying to figure out what's gone on and Jesus makes this point which brings us kind of to our contemporary moment in Acts chapter 8. Jesus says of Samaria that it is white and ready for harvest. But the fact of the matter is, most Jews, even followers of Jesus, would not count Samaritans as worthy of harvest, would not count them as worthy of gospel. They're the kind of people that they had their chance. They blew it. They don't deserve any better. They're, they're awful. They're God-haters. They, they've rejected the truth. It's, it's all the kind of thoughts that we would have in our minds when we see people showing up on the news, trumpeting and championing all these vile and anti-God cultural concepts. We think they're the heathen of the heathens. What could the gospel possibly mean to them? And yet Jesus would look at these protesters marching with their rainbow signs and their anti-God agenda, and he would say, look, look at the color. The color is white. It's white to harvest. It's ready. And we would think, I'm not cut out to go to them with the gospel. And so in Acts 8, God stomps on this puddle of the church and scatters it. And there Philip is in Samaria. He doesn't wonder what he's supposed to do. He knows exactly what he's supposed to do. Because Jesus had said, here's what you do. You're a witness. And so you give a witness to the power of Jesus Christ to change your life. The kingdom of God is advancing as Jesus said it should. Our witness is to the transforming work of Jesus. Who doesn't need to hear that? We could ask who does need to hear it, and perhaps God would lay someone on your heart. But to address our perhaps religious prejudices against those who are so against what we believe, maybe we should be asking who doesn't deserve to hear this? Who would we keep this from? Because we may be tempted to do just that this week. 
Number four, the kingdom is advancing with the good news of King Jesus. King Jesus. Where do we get this in the text? Begins in verse five. Philip went to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. The Christ. Remember, Christ is a title before it was a name. We now associate it with the name, Jesus. Sometimes we use his name, Jesus, which means Jehovah is salvation. Other times we use the name Christ. But Christ is a title. It's Messiah. But that's a Hebrew word. That doesn't always help us. It means the anointed one. This is the promised one. This was God's promised solution to man's sin problem. Philip went around proclaiming to them God's solution for how sinners can be made right with God. It's through the one that God would send. God doesn't tell us you need to figure out the solution and do the best you can to try to earn your way to heaven. He says, I've sent my son. He will keep the law perfectly. You need to trust in him. Philip's message was the message of the Christ. But verse 12 then adds some details. There we're told they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Now when the Greek language links things together without some articles, we're to assume that he's meaning one and the same thing. He's almost speaking appositively. He says one thing and renames it as another. So Philip's message is really one thrust in verse 12. He's preaching the good news. What is the good news? It's the kingdom of Jesus. It's the kingdom and the name, but they go together because the kingdom needs a king and that king is named Jesus. So this message of good news was not just a message of you need to add Jesus to your life. What we're going to see is Simon thought exactly that. That's a great idea. I've got enormous influence with my magic, with this being in touch with darkness. What if I add Jesus? But that wasn't Philip's message. His message was you come to Jesus as your savior and as your king. He rescues you and he rules you. That's who Jesus is. You don't come and take one or the other. You take Jesus. The advance of the kingdom is the good news of King Jesus. Our witness must involve the language of God's rule, his authority, his lordship, and we see that in the person of Jesus. So present the gospel, share the good news. That's what Philip did, but it was a gospel that said, yes, Jesus can rescue you, but if he does, he rules you. He's Lord. That's who he is. Factor that in. In this big theme of the kingdom is advancing, remember it comes at a cost. The cost of laying down your life to follow King Jesus. Number five, the kingdom is advancing, leaving a wake of joy. A wake of joy. If you haven't been out on a lake much, you might not understand a wake. But when the boat zips by and that propeller is thrusting water out behind it, that that wave that the boat causes begins to spread out from behind that boat and it spreads further and further as it ripples out. And it's all caused by the thrust the force of that propeller. It's the evidence that the boat has gone by. Well, this wake that is left behind Philip's preaching of Christ the King is a wake of joy. Verse 8, there was much joy in the city. Many had been healed. The lame had walked. Those who were controlled or possessed by unclean spirits are freed from that bondage. This is much like James earlier or uh, earlier in Acts chapter 3 where the man who was born lame and had been so for 40 years is suddenly healed and he's walking and leaping and praising God. 
source of joy as they recognize that in the name of Jesus, I can be set free. I can be forgiven. I can be transformed. As the gospel moves beyond Jerusalem, we see this miraculous display of power. We'll look at this later as well because we want to ask and answer this question as we press on in the study of Acts. What's going on here when the apostles come and they receive the Holy Spirit when the apostles lay their hands on them? It's been called the Samaritan Pentecost, and we'll see later in Acts a Gentile Pentecost, something similar. It's if God is making clear through miraculous signs that his revelation is coming through the apostles, yes, to the Jews in Jerusalem, but also to the Samaritans and eventually to the whole world. This gospel is for all of them. And this gospel, good news, is the source of true joy to know God, to be at peace with him and in him. Wherever the gospel goes, joy follows. Number six, the kingdom is advancing, piercing the darkness with light. In verses 9 through 12, we read of Simon. Simon was perceived as the great one. He worked his magic Magic. He set himself up as God. In this language of our text, which says Simon was known as the great, that's, that's language that's not unfamiliar to the Jewish ears. It would be very similar language to the Old Testament representation of God as he revealed his names. Simon was a somebody. The text labors to tell us they paid attention to this guy. And, and this magic that he worked was, was powerful. That was the source of his control over people. His cooperation with darkness was his greatest asset. So what we realize is that this is enemy territory. But we're told the gates of hell could not withstand the gospel assault. Verse 11, they paid attention to him for a long time. He had amazed them with his magic, but... When they believed, all that changed. It's an interesting account of Simon. When the apostles come and the Holy Spirit comes down on the Samaritans, Simon lights up. He is amazed. This would be awesome, he thinks. If I could have that kind of power added to what I've already established as my little empire. And he offers money to buy this power of utilizing the Holy Spirit. In the Middle Ages of the church, one of the popes linked Simon in Samaria to the practice that was going on in the church of buying position or power or influence in the church. So you can look it up in your dictionary and the word simony is still a noun to describe the purchasing of influence, especially in the church. Long been a problem, but it's revealed for us here that Simon really was not interested in the power of God to transform his life as much as he was interested in the power of God to enhance his empire. The kingdom of God is advancing even as it pierces the darkness. When they heard the good news, these people of Samaria believed. They wanted to be rescued from sin, and they wanted to submit to the benevolent rule of King Jesus. The darkness was being pushed back. It was being pierced by the light. John wrote in the opening of his gospel that Jesus, the word, is the light of life. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Simon could work his magic and be in touch with darkness, but it was no match. Even the one who delved into the realm of darkness was amazed when the light shone in Samaria and immediately saw the value and the power and the success of light. Remember as you witness... And by that, I don't mean 
lengthy paragraphs of conversation. I mean in, in the showing of the Christian life and the telling of it, as many words as you can. In your witness, you are shining light into darkness. We know it's dark and we bemoan that darkness as if we have forgotten that John's word is to us that light shines in the darkness and darkness cannot overcome it. Finally, see this, that the kingdom is advancing, calling sinners to repent and believe. You see, Simon stood in awe of the transformation of the gospel and even professed faith in the gospel. It says Simon believed and was baptized. Do not think for a moment that Simon was the last person to say, yes, I believe in Jesus. Sure, baptize me. proclaimed, Lord, Lord, and did a lot of good things in the name of Jesus, but will have no place in heaven, will not stand before God and be declared righteous. You see, what unfolds in the life of Simon is what Jesus taught us in the parable of the, the soils, where the seed is thrown and on some soil it grows and other soils it doesn't. Some of the soils, like the rocky soil, it takes root and seems to sprout up, but because of all the rocks, the roots can't get deep enough and, and it doesn't work. The plant shrivels up and dies in the heat of the sun because there was no root. In the simple farming illustration, Jesus is telling us there will be some that seem to rejoice in the good news and, oh, sure, I believe that, but then by the way that they live, we see that they are not truly believers. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said, there will be those who say, Lord, Lord, did, not, did I not do all these wonderful works in your name? And Jesus, the righteous judge, will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Simon is a living example of that. Peter's message to Simon is not a pleasant one. May your silver perish with you. We would use language that you think is only from the movies or something to, to literally translate what is there. It, it, was, it was a clear pointing in a direction. Go to. Take all of that kind of filthy unbelief and vile understanding of the power of God to transform lives that you wanted to manipulate, take that and perish, Peter says. You thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this manner. In what manner? In the gift of God. You see, it doesn't matter what Simon said. What matters is how Simon lives. Is his heart set on the things of God or on the things of Simon? Peter's message is clear in verse 22. Repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Why would, Pete, why would Peter say, if possible? Because he wants Simon to know everything hinges on the repentance. This isn't a matter of whether God's big enough to forgive this sin. It's a matter of will Simon this time genuinely Throw himself on the mercy of God for salvation. Peter is saying, Simon, you cannot add God to your magic tricks. You can't use God to work some kind of wonders. God is trying to work a wonder in you, and you won't let him. Repent. I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. You're still enslaved to the darkness. You see, at first it looked like Simon's greatest asset was his affinity for darkness. The magic worked for Simon. It built him an empire, a following. And now we see that his cooperation with darkness is his greatest liability. He cannot give up that kind of control. He's in the bond of iniquity. Repent. Simon's answer is telling 
Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Simon's message, or Peter's message to Simon wasn't, I'll pray for you and maybe bad things won't happen. Peter's message was, repent. You, before God, repent. Change your ways. Turn around. You're you're pursuing self-righteousness and sin. Turn from it. And the response is, put in a good word for me. Pharaoh did this to Moses. Moses threatened plagues, and they came, and Pharaoh would say things like, well, go and tell your God this for me. There there was no personal desire to reckon with this God or to reconcile, and so it is with Simon. Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said would come upon me. And that's the end of our story. We, We don't know what comes of Simon other than, History seems to reveal that he went on to continue the magic and became known as Simon Magus, Simon Mega, Simon the Great. He seemed to embrace that empire rather than embracing the empire of King Jesus. But it's just a bump in the road in our story because the text continues. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. It's a fascinating story that reminds us the kingdom is advancing, but here's this one detail that tells us when we witness, we must call sinners to repent and believe. To repent of the sin and the self-righteousness and to believe that only in Jesus will God forgive us and declare us righteous. This profession of Simon's, oh, I'm a believer, sure, baptize me, reminds us of the various responses that we will face when we testify of Christ. Remember this story because we can be tempted to make salvation sound easy palatable, an addition of Jesus to your life. When Jesus said the opposite, he said, no man putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. That sounds harsh to say, yes, I want to believe in Jesus, but I have these questions. And Jesus says, no, you're not fit. You will not stand before God and be declared righteous if you're going to constantly look back at the way things were or what might have been or what I'm surrendering or what I'm giving up. Jesus used the language of crucifixion for the Christian life. Unless a man takes up his cross and denies himself, he cannot be my disciple. When a man carried a cross through the streets of Jerusalem led by the Romans, everyone knew he's not coming back. His life has been lost to the cause of the Romans. Jesus said, if you'll follow me, your life must be lost to the cause. So be careful that you don't make Christianity seem easy. It won't be easy. Be careful. We must be clear. God demands repentance and faith. And be careful because at times we get discouraged when people either don't believe or when they say they believe and then they fall away from church and live nothing like a believer. The apostles would help the church think this through in some of the letters and they would tell us, listen, there will always be those who having professed faith in Christ will depart from the church, but the conclusion is they were never really of the church. They just professed. It seemed like the good thing to do. Note verse 25 as we close. True success in our witnessing is defined here for us. Not in did Simon believe or not. We don't need to know that. We need to know success as they testified, they spoke the word, they preached the gospel. That same word for spreading the good news. There is success in your witness this week. 
It's not somebody comes to church with you. It's not they make a profession of faith, though we would love for either of those things to happen. The success is you told them the good news. The pressure is off, friends. You don't have to draw the net and make somebody believe this. You need to speak the word and testify and share the good news by the way you live and by the way you speak. We speak of Christ. Christ builds his church. Don't get them confused. Don't think we build the church. Christ does that. We simply say he's the one doing it. He's the good news. And so which of these seven details could enhance your witness? Maybe it gives you more confidence. Maybe it gives you motivation. There's seven of them. Maybe your mind can't take in all seven. Preachers are advised generally not to preach seven-point messages. They call that a shotgun. Just blast it out there. Surely something will hit somebody. But maybe one of these points could just settle into your mind so that this this idea of being a witness isn't some scary proposition. It's just a reminder, it's what I am. It's what I do. And I may not be a pastor in the pulpit, but remember, the church took this witness everywhere. The church, except for the apostles. Oh, God had them doing their thing, but he has the whole church doing its thing witnessing to the joy that is found in Jesus. Heavenly Father, take this, your word, and help us to be better witnesses. We need your help. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to shine through us, not to be in us because you've said it's there. May we turn that power loose in our lives. And may this week, be a week of success as we live out the Christian life and men see our good works and glorify you, our Father in heaven, and as we speak with our words of what we know in our hearts is so good, this message that you, our God, have been merciful to save sinners through Jesus Christ. Bless your word to us, which would mean blessing our witness to the world that we go into as we leave this place. We go as witnesses of Jesus, our rescuer, our benevolent king. May we be faithful till he comes. We pray this in his name. Amen.